I think the research aspect of nursing differs quite a bit from a hard science and the fact that you are considering a human. And, uh, you know, I think in medical research, it's, it's definitely more intervention focused, whereas nursing research tends to be more human focused, relational focused, taking the person, their thoughts, their feelings into account. Welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring the foundations of nursing science and practice, including theory, measurement, and methodology, and the first podcast of its kind to do a deep dive into the nuances of nursing research. My name is Ian Lane, and I'll be your host. All opinions shared on this podcast are my own, and none of the information I share constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing David Warren. David is a certified family nurse practitioner, an adult gero acute care nurse practitioner, and a certified emergency nurse practitioner. He received his graduate education from the University of Alabama. He's been a nurse practitioner for a little over six years, practicing solely in the field of emergency medicine. After working for more than two years in an academic medical center emergency department, he chose to pursue his passion for the outdoors by becoming a travel nurse practitioner and practicing wilderness medicine. The majority of David's work as a travel NP has taken place in some of the most isolated communities in the remote Alaskan bush. Currently, he lives and works in Dallas, Texas, and has several PRN emergency department jobs in the DFW area. Enjoy this episode with David Warren. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time. So, David, why don't you introduce yourself to my audience and tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been a nurse practitioner, and what brought you into nursing initially? Yeah, so my name is David Warren, and I am a nurse practitioner. I've been practicing for six years now. I'm going on my seventh year, and I received my bachelor's degree in nursing from the University of Texas at Tyler and then I received my master's degree from the University of Alabama. And uh, my focus there was a family nurse practitioner and an acute care nurse practitioner. And basically all of my experience has been in emergency medicine and wilderness medicine. And so I, uh, I started practicing immediately in the emergency department. Even as a nurse, my, my background was in pediatric ER and adult ER. And then after school, I knew I really wanted to go into emergency medicine. That was kind of my comfort zone and where I really saw myself thriving. And so I I looked for jobs in emergency medicine and and ran across a great job. And so uh, kind of taken off from there ever ever since I've started practicing. It's all been in emergency medicine. Uh, Starting in 2017, I realized I really did not want a full-time job. I was kind of over the full-time job thing. And so I quit and I started traveling. I became a travel nurse practitioner and I've traveled off and on to multiple areas in the United States since 2017. And that's kind of where I'm at in my career right now. So did you, when you said uh, family and acute care, are you double boarded in family and acute care? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm double boarded. I'm a family nurse practitioner and then adult gerontology acute care nurse practitioner. That's great. So that might bring up some talking points about the consensus model and some of the things that um, I've recently talked with uh, 
John and some other individuals on on the podcast. Certainly. So it's interesting, the travel aspect. Um, before I ask you a little bit more about those experiences, what made you want to quit the full-time gig and do the travel thing? Like, what was the impetus for, like, I'd like to travel around and, you know, what made you want to do that? So... I really had some regrets as a bedside nurse as far as not traveling. And when I worked as a bedside nurse, I interacted almost daily with travel nurses. And at the time, I really wasn't ready to travel as a bedside nurse. And after my advanced practice career started, I really thought, you know, I kind of regret that. Like, I really would love to travel the country and work. I think that would be fabulous. One, you get to create your own schedule. And two, you historically make a little bit more money than you would gainfully employed in like a permanent position. And so I I didn't really even know if that was feasible. And in the ER where I was working, uh, ER gets burnout really easily. And I thought, you know, I need to do something different. I'm working, you know, 15, 16 shifts per month, 12 hour shifts. I'm rotating between days and nights and my sanity is like going out the window. And I really need to do something different. So I remember one night I was laying in bed and I was Googling travel nurse practitioner. Like, is that even a thing? And sure enough, it was. And I came across multiple locum tenens websites. And so that's the fancy term for a provider who travels as locum tenens. And I began looking into that about a year before I pulled the trigger and started doing it. And I really wanted to, one, create my own schedule. My ideal schedule would be to work for like one to two months and then take one to two months off for for leisure travel pre-COVID. So I had this kind of like goal in mind as to what I wanted to do, but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to implement that. And so I spent a year really trying to work through the mechanics of, you know, what would this look like? Would I still live in Texas? Would I move somewhere? What about my family, my parents? I'm not, I don't have like an active family. Uh, I don't have kids. I'm not married. So in that regard, I don't really have any ties tying me down to where I was staying at the time. But nonetheless, I really wanted to find out, is it even possible for for me to do something like this? And so I ran across uh, some wilderness medicine travel uh, up in Alaska. And that really piqued my interest because I love outdoors and I love photography. And Alaska is a perfect place to do it all of that combined. And so I read about these positions, they're solo provider, you're basically in the middle of nowhere, running a like remote clinic, the closest hospitals, usually an airplane ride away. And initially that really scared me. I thought I I can't do that. That's kind of crazy. But the more I thought about it, I got in touch with different people who had done that and um, thought about it and, you know, really got my guns up and decided to, to pull the trigger and do it. And so that's kind of how I started traveling. And that, that for me, that started in October of 2017. I went on my first travel assignment in Alaska. And um, I've kind of stayed doing that ever since. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I, I love it, for again, for the schedule. That's the main reason I like it is I can work when I want and I can be off when I want. That's fantastic. I feel like I would be scared also <laughs> to be in Alaska where you're uh, pretty far from most typical support. So I imagine your first time doing that, were you pretty frightened? I mean, was it really nerve wracking? What was that like for you? It it was. So I, when I first started, I had never been to Alaska. The first time I set foot in Alaska was was traveling for work. And I got in touch with a company that staffed wilderness medicine positions. And I talked to other nurse practitioners who really kind of laid the groundwork and told me what to expect, what it would be like, what kind of patients you're going to be seeing. And basically you are by yourself uh, or with one or two other providers, some support staff in uh, like a remote clinic and it's a family practice clinic. 
And a lot of the times you get people that walk in that need more than a family practice clinic. Maybe they need an emergency department. And unfortunately, the closest hospital is usually either a plane ride away or a few hours away by private vehicle. And so that's really where the wilderness medicine aspect comes into play because you have minimal resources. Again, it functions as a family practice clinic. So there are basic labs, maybe some x-ray, EKG, urinalysis. There's no CAT scan. There's really no specialists other than yourself. And so you really have to manage and deal with whatever pops through the door. And so uh, initially I was very scared. I was quite terrified as to what I was really getting myself into. But the more I thought about it, the more I knew that that was going to be something that I could, I think I could get comfortable with. And I really felt like my emergency medicine experience thus far had prepared me for that. And there are scary situations that you may get yourself into, but ultimately, if you have the critical care emergency medicine experience, it's really somewhere that people can thrive. And as long as you're doing the right thing for the patient, right thing by the patient, usually there's, there's no difficulty, there's no problem. Uh, but overall, it, it initially was very terrifying. And even to this day, it is a little terrifying to think about being out in the middle of nowhere and you know who knows what may show up at your doorstep. And that's... A little terrifying, but I, th I think that fear factor kind of keeps you on your toes and, and keeps you ready for what may come, and you don't get complacent in a, in a place like that. And that's something I enjoy about it. It really kind of keeps my mind at peak and keeps me on my toes. That's great. I appreciate you sharing that with me. So I came to learn about you, as I'm sure many people have through YouTube. Um, you have a YouTube channel. Tell us, you know, what made you start that? Like, what was the impetus for your YouTube channel? Yeah. So, you know, I never, and even still to this day, I don't picture myself as a YouTuber <laughs> and I don't, I don't like to picture myself as someone who's like holding out the camera and talking to, you know, talking to the camera. Um, but I guess that's kind of what the comments in some regard. Um, so I started my YouTube channel in February of 2019 and it really all started with one of my PRN jobs here in Texas. I had a coworker that had a YouTube channel and she found out that I'd been traveling for a couple of years and she's like, Hey, you really should consider starting a podcast or a YouTube channel or something to like document your experience because it's very unique. You know, there's not a, there's not a lot of people. There's not a lot of nurse practitioners that travel. There's, that's a very small subset of the population of nurse practitioners and even a fewer percent who travel to Alaska. And, uh, and with, with the, experience of being in like a remote clinic as a solo provider, I thought, you know, that would be for me personally interesting to document just to go back and to watch maybe in a later time to document what I've seen, how I've seen it, what I've dealt with, that sort of thing. And so I thought about it. I uh, love photography. So I have a, a good camera, I have a tripod, I had basically all the equipment to start a good quality video and to start a YouTube channel. The only thing I was lacking was the experience on how to talk to a camera and the experience on how to like edit video footage and to do videography. And that's something that I feel like I've grown to know over the past, you know, two or three years, something that I probably still don't know very well, but you know, I can edit still photography and I can take still pictures, but the whole videography thing was a, was a huge learning curve for me. And so I think every YouTuber, every podcaster, whoever should go back and listen to their first episode that they ever recorded. And it just kind of makes me cringe a little bit, but <laughs> it's interesting to keep that video there because I see kind of how far I've come over the past couple of years and as far as making the video itself, the editing, the technicality of it. And uh, it's been a journey for sure. I've enjoyed it. I try to upload when I can. 
And I really don't want to turn it into a job. You know, I want to do it for fun. I don't want it to become something that I don't look forward to. Uh, but I do like sharing my experiences. And initially when I started, I thought there's no way that anybody is going to be interested in this. Like there's, that's not going to happen. And there've been a lot of people that have reached out to, you know, to find out about traveling and how that can even be a thing. And so in that regard, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, it, and if it helps, you know, somebody else in some way or another, I'm, I'm grateful for that. A lot of that resonates with me as someone who is a novice podcaster. And I thought in the beginning, like, who's going to want to listen to some kid talk about statistics and nursing science? And there yeah. at the time was zero out there on nursing science in the podcast world. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so this was the first podcast on nursing science ever, as far as I can tell. And um, and oh. so that niche, uh, is it's a weird thing. But now there's a lot of people who listen, and it's fascinating to me. That's um, really cool. So the other thing I'm interested in, you know, it's it sounds like to me this was an interesting hobby that you you started and that you've learned a lot from. And I'm curious, since you started, what were some of the things you've learned about your, I guess I can say show, that you didn't expect? Like, what has it morphed into for you that you're realizing now as you do it that this is something altogether different than you thought it might be when you started? So my, and I spent a good two or three months thinking about really what I wanted the YouTube channel to look like and what I wanted it to be for YouTube. And I'm sure for podcasting as well, you have to have a focus and you have to have, you, you, you can't have your channel all over the board. It has to be really be focused in a, in a particular area. When I started out, I really wanted to kind of document my travel experience and kind of what that looked like. That was the whole idea. However, as the channel kind of morphed over the year or so, people really reached out and wanted to know more about education and about the ER side of it. And so I also work PR in shifts. I live in Texas, so I work in the ER in Texas. And people wanted to know about emergency medicine. And originally, the channel wasn't really intended to focus on that area of practice, but people really reached out and wanted to, to know more about emergency medicine, to do like case studies, to know what education I had. So it's really, it's really kind of morphed into a nurse practitioner channel with some travel aspects interspersed in there as well. Very cool. You mentioned the, the need for your content to be focused on something. And for, for this podcast, it's very focused on research, clearly. It's a nursing research <laughs> podcast. And this kind of brings me to why I wanted to talk with you. And we talked a little bit before I started recording about what my interests are in blending practice-based research with sort of the prototypical ivory tower type research, um, mm -hmm. the more mainstream academic side of nursing, and kind of bring them and merge them together. And one of the ways that I find that that has to be done is through more of a community-based approach where you actually have conversations with people in both camps, so to speak. And so as sure. someone who's been in practice for how long now? How, when did you start again? Uh, I started in mid-2015, so this is my sixth year. Okay. So, I mean, the better part of a decade, you've been a practicing nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of experience. You've worked all around the country. And partly that's why I wanted to talk with you is as a travel NP, particularly in an acute care setting, um, you've probably seen it all and worked with a lot of different providers, nurses, PAs, physicians. So as someone on the ground, I'm interested to get a to get your sense on a couple different things. Firstly, with the kind of varied legislative conditions that that are different state by state for nurse practitioners right now, 
as someone who travels, how has that affected your practice? That's, that's a good question. Um, it, it greatly affects it actually. So it, it, uh, again, largely depends on the state and the area and the clinical focus area in which you work. So specifically for me in the emergency department, Texas is a supervised state. And so, and it's different for each focus. So I'll kind of take this bit by bit. So for emergency medicine, there are some ERs that I've worked in, in Texas where, uh, the physician will not see any of my patients that I see. I'll see my own subset of patients. I'll disposition them, admit them, discharge them, transfer them, whatever. And the physician doesn't have anything to do with that. And then on the flip side of that, there are other areas, the other hospitals that I've worked in where I see the patient and then the physician will also conjunctively see the patient and want to talk about the patient, talk about the plan of care, talk about what tests we're going to order, et cetera. So those are kind of polar opposites of what that can look like. And some hospitals are on one side and some hospitals are on the other and some hospitals may be in the middle. Some hospitals may have the physician see some of your patients that you see. It really depends. Uh, however, that is quite different from like a family medicine clinic. Let's say you're a family nurse practitioner, you're working in family medicine, internal medicine, and you are uh, working with a physician and maybe the physician sees his own set of patients and you have your own set of patients and you don't communicate about it. You don't communicate about the patient care. Um, so it, it largely depends on your practice area as to kind of what area you're in. You know, if you work in the ICU here in Texas, you are part of the team. You're going to be talking to the intensivist. You're going to be talking to the bedside nurse, to the, to the respiratory therapist, whoever else is in the ICU with you. Um, kind of contrasting that with a full practice authority state. So I've worked in Iowa. That's a full practice authority state. And in the ER there, it was much it was much like some of the places I practice in Texas. I would see my own set of patients and the physician would see his own set of patients. However, in the ICU at that same hospital, even though it's a full practice state, the nurse practitioner would work in conjunction with the intensivist, with the respiratory therapist, with the nurse. So even though it's a full practice authority state, it's still a team-based approach mm -hmm. and you're still working together with the critical care team or with the GI team or with the cardiology team, whatever team you're with, you're still working in conjunction with that. And so I think some people think that this whole full practice authority thing means that I can go work wherever and I don't have to not necessarily answer to anybody, but I don't have to talk to anybody. And that's not what that really looks like. Again, it depends on the area, but a lot of the times it will be working with a team-based approach. It will be working with physicians, with nurses. And so as far as the rules and the legislative issues, um, that is something that I consider whenever I take a new job somewhere is what do the laws look like in that state? Each state has their own quirks and their own like set of laws that you have to obey. And so in Texas, you have to have, you know, you have to be registered on the Texas Medical Board website under a physician's license before you can start practicing. And so there's just like minor technical details like that, that, that you have to make sure your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed before you go to that state. And usually whoever you're working with, so if it's with a hospital, if it's with a travel company, will make sure that is in line. I mean, they're not going to bring somebody into their institution who hasn't been through credentialing and who hasn't crossed their T's and dotted their I's, so to say, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, you also mentioned earlier, and I know I touched on it kind of secondarily, that you have both the family nurse practitioner certification and an adult gero acute care. I am curious, 
as to your perceptions on some of the ramifications of the consensus model from your perspective on the ground of having practiced with a lot of different emergency providers across the country, in particular as an emergency practitioner? You know, what have your experiences been there? What do you see as being some of the struggles there that need to be addressed? That's a super interesting question. I feel like I have a lot to say about this. I'm going to try to maybe break it down a little bit. So I think most practicing nurse practitioners, uh, I know the, the consensus model also focuses on clinical nurse specialists and CRNAs. However, I'm kind of more focused on the nurse practitioner area right now. I think most practicing nurse practitioners who aren't academic focused, who maybe just have their MSN, they're not a doctorally prepared NP, probably don't think about the consensus model. Maybe they don't know what it is. They don't think about it. How, and, and that was me, honestly, until I got into emergency medicine. And that really opened Pandora's box for me as to, uh, as to the consensus model. I think the consensus model was a good idea. And I think it was, it had good intentions. And I think the people that wrote, that came together, the team that came together for the consensus model really wanted everything compartmentalized. They wanted everybody in their nice little like box. And specifically for me, where does emergency medicine fit into that? Or being an emergency nurse practitioner, where does, where does that fit into the consensus model? And the more you look at it and the more I've thought about it, it doesn't. Uh, you know, what, what certification do you need to work in the ER? Uh, you, you see whatever pops through the door. That would theoretically mean you need a family nurse practitioner certification, adult acute care, pediatric acute care, psychiatric, women's health, maybe even a midwife if you're going to deliver a baby. So, you know, that's that's kind of the struggle that I've had is what sort of – a bigger, broader question. What certification do you actually need to work in emergency medicine? And most of the state boards of nursing and even the consensus model want there to be formal education involved in that. And there are not a whole lot of emergency nurse practitioner programs floating around out there. There are a few. And that is another thing that we run into is as of 2017, I, I'm also an emergency nurse practitioner. I passed the national certification exam for that. However, that is a specialty certification. That's not a license. Right. And so I'm sure, as you know, family nurse practitioners are, uh, are certified across the lifespan, birth to death, in primary care. And so that's a little bit of the, the thing you run into in a, a, criti- a potentially critical care setting in emergency medicine is, you know, what do you need to work there? Because you're going to be maybe intubating somebody or putting in a chest tube. I didn't learn that in my family nurse practitioner program. And I would grant that most everybody out there didn't do that either, maybe a few from 20 or 30 years ago. But that's not a that's not a normal thing to learn in a family nurse practitioner program. And so the consensus model for me kind of muddied the waters, honestly, because if you work in the ICU, then you know what certification you need, you know, pediatric or adults, uh, acute care. If you work in psychiatric, you know what you need. If you work in the neonatal ICU, you know what you need. But it becomes a little muddied for emergency medicine because that is kind of the, I don't know, that's that's the catch-all for everything. I mean, anybody could end up, anybody, everybody does end up there at some point, uh, patient-wise. You're going to see birth to death, codes in kids, codes in adults. You're going to be putting chest tubes in kids, chest tubes in adults, intubating kids, intubating adults, seeing psychiatric patients, seeing OB patients. And so I think the consensus model does a grave disservice to 
the emergency nurse practitioner profession in that regard. It just doesn't really help. And I don't know the statistics on this, but the subset of nurse practitioners practicing in emergency medicine is pretty small. There's not a whole lot of them out there, but there are some, and it, and it does affect us. And, you know, I think the consensus model, again, had good intentions and it had, you know, it had good thoughts trying to try to standardize NP education and NP certification and scope of practice, but I think it fell a little short, and um, and it's something that even to this day that people struggle with. Eighty to ninety percent of nurse practitioners practicing in the emergency department are family nurse practitioners, but they do take care of critical care patients, and so that really brings the question: where where did the education? come in because most people did not get formal education as an emergency nurse practitioner. Most picked it up on the job or did did some sort of extra training that may not be considered formal education. And when the emergency nurse practitioner certification came out, it, you know, there were hopes that a license would be granted for that, but that's not the case. It's considered a specialty certification. And so in tech, I can't speak for other states, but in Texas, you can't get an emergency nurse practitioner license because Texas has followed in a consensus model, and that doesn't. There's there's no population subset for fam, for emergency nurse practitioner, and so even though you have the certification, there's really no competency to show. There's no licensure to show that that's what you have. However, I will say in Alaska, it's a little bit different. I actually have an emergency nurse practitioner license there based on that certification that I have. Hmm. So. It varies state to state. You, you know, you can't. I, I can't really speak to all the other states and what they're doing. Uh, I, you know, I know Texas and Alaska because I've practiced there. I've been through the board, and you know, to be licensed. So that's a little bit of the reason I know a little bit about that as to how I've come to obtain an, an emergency nurse practitioner license in one state and not in another. The other thing that I think about too, as you tell me this story, is that, and you can correct me if this is wrong, David, but. When you started, you said you didn't really have a, a good handle or a good grasp on the consensus model, and then it sort of hit you as you got into emergency care? A little bit, yeah. So I I had heard of the consensus model. I knew what it was, but, you know, I, th I, didn't, really, I didn't really take the time to, to really understand it mm. until I started practicing in emergency medicine, and I saw my colleagues who were trained in a primary care family nurse practitioner program who are who can't go through credentialing at the hospital because they don't have an acute care certification and that really kind of opened the door i thought what is going on here that's very interesting the more i look at it the more the more of my own personal reading that i've done there's not a good area in the consensus model that fits for emergency nurse practitioners. And, you know, they're the, the group of American Academy of Emergency Nurse Practitioners is actively trying to do something about that. And I um, am a member of that organization and uh, at one point sat on a committee to try to talk to state boards about doing something about this. And uh, how did that go? It, you know, it was interesting. We we emailed the state boards of nursing to try to get it. To, it's a very slow process, to be honest with you. We emailed state boards of nursing, basically one at a time, to try to set up a meeting to um, discuss what specifically for emergency nurse practitioners, what does licensure look like, what does certification look like, what certification do you even need to do that, 
And, you know, I've asked that question of multiple people. What certification do you need to work in the emergency department? And no one can ever give a straight answer because I don't think there is a straight answer. It's, it's a very, it's muddy water and, you know, it's, it's muddy for me and I'm in the profession. I'm a nurse practitioner. I can only imagine what it looks like for, you know, a physician who's trying to hire you, a medical director of the emergency department who knows that you're a nurse practitioner, but maybe doesn't understand the ramifications of your population focus and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And if you're adult acute care, you can't see the kid that's in room 13, like they don't, they don't get that. And I think it's confusing for me, and I'm like literally here. I can only imagine what it's like for people outside the profession, for PAs, for physicians, for credentialing committees. So that that obviously opens up a whole other can of worms. To my mind, as soon as you start drawing these lines in the sand, you start opening the door for serious complications that maybe you didn't consider before. And there's a lot of nuances here. You mentioned one that's very interesting to me, which is suppose you're family trained and acute care trained, and people assume that because you're family trained, you can take care of kids. But the point you made, which is a good point, and I think people should hear it, is that you're trained to take care of kids in a primary care context, not an acute care context. So are you really trained to deal with a child who needs uh, a chest tube, let's say? I mean, that's really debatable. Um, but then you could even say the other way around. Suppose you're a family nurse practitioner in Alaska in the middle of nowhere, and you have to take care of whatever comes through that door, and you get somebody who really belongs in an emergency department, but you're the provider and you're the only one there. And so all of a sudden, you're just by default doing some serious acute care work. And to my mind, there's reason to train that person to be able to handle those situations to for the benefit of their patients. Yeah. So the reason I say this is because as we look at some of these delineations, these lines in the sand, it starts to get very murky, as you said. Having worked in Iowa and Texas and Alaska and across the country, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to talk with you is I want to get a sense from you as to what sort of rumblings are there that you're hearing, and even you know just from your own perspective, um, your own experience, in terms of what are the things you wish that nursing researchers, policymakers, were really thinking about differently, were doing research on, were focused on, that would benefit practicing clinicians? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, one of the things that uh, again, like I mentioned, I work in Texas at an ER, and one of the things that, that particular ER that we've done is we've made it an opioid-free emergency department. And that's been very interesting research because historically in the emergency department, you get a lot of people, not a lot of people, you get a good number of people who come in wanting narcotics, wanting benzos, whatever flavor they like. And you know, there, I'm sure as you're aware, there's a major opioid epi epidemic in the United States. A lot of people die from that, mm. uh, from either opioid overdose or benzos or a combination of both. And um, in the emergency department where I practice, there uh, was a push to reduce opioid use. And this all started a couple of years ago. And so uh, it's been very interesting to see over the course of two years what that data has looked like and, and what's been done in that regard. And that's something that I've kind of dealt with as a practicing provider because that directly impacts me as to what medications I give to patients. Uh, but it's been very interesting. It's also been very eye-opening that um, from one year, I'm, I'm not exactly, I think it's 2018 to 2019, the opioid use in the emergency department where I worked was decreased by over 90%. Wow. And so 
Uh, and the correlating factor to that was the patient satisfaction scores went up, which was fascinating to me. That's like, what? <laughs> Doesn't make sense. Of course, you're going to have some people that are upset, but overall, as a whole, people were more satisfied with non-opioid medications or non, maybe non-pharmacologic treatment in general than they were with receiving narcotics, which I've I, I still am trying to wrap my brain around that. I think it's really interesting. Um, that all started with reducing IV morphine and IV fentanyl were kind of the mainstays of ER pain medication management. However, we've now implemented uh, a thing called ALTO. It's A-L-T-O. It's called Alternatives to Opioids. And there are a subset of medications that we can use for differing problems. And so I will kind of preface that with this, that opioids aren't off the table. If you have somebody that has true pathology, they have a femur fracture, a tip-tip fracture, appendicitis, whatever, if they have real pathology, then yes, opioids are at our disposal to use. However, for standard run-of-the-mill things, we try non-opioids first. And so maybe that looks like some IV Toradol, IM Toradol. Uh, we are now using ultrasound-guided nerve blocks, peripheral nerve blocks, um, ketamine. There's lots of different things, non-opioid, that we are using to control pain. And um, for instance, a kidney stone, we would, uh, we would give IV lidocaine. And that's uh, research has shown that that decreases pain. And it's something that I routinely use in my practice now. And so as far as your question, the, the ivory tower and the practicing ants on the ground, there is a bit of a disconnect. And I think that, um, I think that really depends on where you're working. Honestly, you know, if you work in an academic facility, you're going to be in tune with kind of what's going on with the research that's going on. Um, if you work in Alaska, you're not at an academic facility. <laughs> you're the only one there. There's not a whole lot of research going on there. But it's interesting to know that you can take what you learn and run with it and use it in different locations, use it in different places. Maybe I go to North Dakota and practice in a rural emergency department and they're not doing things like they do in Texas. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you have the data, you have the research, you have the knowledge, then that could be implemented in different places. So I think that's the beauty of, of, of actually implementing research and doing research in a facility is you can take that wherever you go, specifically for me being, you know, traveling, that's kind of opened my eyes that um, not every place does it the same way. And, that's interesting to see traveling as well as people do it differently, but there are things to improve on everywhere you go, any area you work in, there are going to be things that you can improve on. Mm. Um, I also think in kind of in conjunction with that, something else I've been very interested in that I don't know if there's a whole lot of research on is the quality of care that pediatric patients receive in pediatric facilities versus adult facilities. Hmm specifically ERs. Um, as I mentioned earlier, my nursing career was started in a pediatric ER. And so I got very comfortable taking care of kids and doing things that maybe you wouldn't normally do in an adult ER when a child comes in. And so after that, working in mainly adult ERs now, it's interesting to see other providers take care of pediatric patients. And I just wonder what the, um, specifically for kids, like what is, what does the quality of care look like from a dedicated pediatric trauma center 
maybe they're not trauma, maybe they're a medical patient, but compare that with an adult ER. What does that look like? What is the, are they getting the same care that they would get? Are they having the same outcomes that they would have at a dedicated pediatric facility? And I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, it absolutely does. Um, and I appreciate that too. My, my husband is a pediatric nurse and he would absolutely echo that uh, research question. Yeah. That would be an interesting <laughs> one. You're kind of speaking, it sounds like you're kind of speaking from the perspective of there are different opportunities for practitioners to integrate valuable research. If you were to speak to the opposite end, if you were to have a chance to talk with an, a researcher, for example, a nurse scientist and say, hey, I kind of think that this would be an interesting area for you to research. You could give them the research idea that you just did about peds, you know, outcomes in. Uh, yeah, yeah. But if you were to mm-hmm. recommend as an expert practitioner to a nurse researcher to focus or refocus on an area of research, what would you recommend that they look to? I think they're is a lot of research on bedside ultrasound in emergency medicine, but I think it could be pushed further. Uh, I think there are a lot of studies out there that confirm that bedside ultrasound helps X, Y, and Z, whatever you're talking about, help you diagnose, treat. Um, but I think it, I think it'll be interesting to see in maybe five or ten years the role of bedside ultrasound in emergency medicine. It plays a big role in some areas, some places, but maybe zero role in other departments. It, it, it largely depends on where you're at. And I think that's something I also found interesting about practicing across the country is one place may be heavily academic focused and one may not be. And so one may be up to date on whatever and one may not be. But I think ultrasound would be something that would be, uh, that could be looked at further to see what else could we do with this. Mm. What other areas could this be utilized? I appreciate you saying that. I think I'm, I just want to backtrack just to say that I recognize that the, the responses you gave before, they sort of all fit. So I wasn't, I guess I want to make it clear that I think the other answers you gave were very good. I think what I'm trying to get a sense of is what you think is missing. And I feel like you've offered a couple different things. And you can correct me if this does not sound right to you, but it strikes me that they're very outcomes focused, patient Mm -hmm. outcomes focused. They're very concrete. I feel like if I were to aggregate across a lot of the clinicians I've talked to, it seems to be a theme. And so maybe I guess the next question for you is if you agree with this, Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of good research out there. And in the world of nursing science, there's some good research out there but maybe some of it needs to be redirected toward clinical patient outcomes research. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's interesting. That's a good point that you bring up. And I think there, like you said earlier, there's this big chasm between academics and clinical practice. And it's, it's hard to make those merge together. And um, I think there could be more patient outcome focused studies uh, coming from nurse scientists. The thought process that I'm having here is that what I would like to do eventually, I would like to do what's called the Delphi study, which is a study where you bring uh, two or three or more populations together and have a conversation with, say, clinicians, where you ask, what are the things that are missing? And then you talk to policymakers, and they 
give you their perspective. And then you talk to researchers <laughs> and then you aggregate the data and you see where do they overlap, what's different. And then you bring them together to have a, a sort of flattened hierarchy conversation where they can tell you, here's what we found, here's what we agree with, here's what we disagree with. And there are ways to to statistically kind of like mold those things so that the outcome, whatever it is, gets at what every group needs. And so you do it in this rigorous scientific fashion. And I don't think anyone's ever done that. So I would like to do That's that. Interesting. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously it has to be particular to an area. So there's a lot of Delphi research in like psychiatric uh, and neuroscience care, but mm, yeah, you know, that if makes sense. we could do it in emergency medicine. I mean, as a, in any case, yeah. I guess I'm really trying to get a sense of like in all your time practicing, is mm -hmm. there a consistent theme that pops up for you that you're like, I really wish that nurse researchers were more focused on X. And if not, that's fine too. But if there is, I actually do think there is. And I, so one area that I found consistent over my course in emergency nursing, emergency nurse practitioner, is the area of discharging. And that sounds kind of mundane and not that fascinating, but it's. I think it plays a big role because whenever you go to discharge a patient from the emergency department, nine times out of ten, they're going to need to see somebody else and follow up with you. Um, they're going to need to see the primary care doctor. They're going to need to see a specialist, cardiology, GI, whoever it may be. They're going to need to see somebody. And they're also going to need to know about what was I here for? What did you do for me? What What's next step? And I think a lot of that falls short. I think especially in emergency nursing, I've been there so I can kind of speak to it. You have three, maybe two or three other patients waiting around the corner for you. Maybe you have a, a stroke in the next room over and a code in the next room over and you're trying to discharge your pneumonia or whatever, whatever flavor you want to pick. And maybe they don't get the best discharge teaching. Maybe they don't understand, I had a chest x-ray, I have pneumonia, I have X, Y, and Z wrong on my labs and I need to follow up with somebody to get, to get a recheck, maybe in 24 hours, maybe in one to two days, maybe in a week, whatever it may be. And I think a lot of that falls through the cracks. I think we're good at documenting in our notes, patient is to follow up with X, Y, and Z in two to three days or is to come back for a recheck, whatever it may be. But I think when the rubber meets the road, that falls through the cracks and we get a lot of patients that come back in one or two days later, you know, not feeling any better from whatever they were seeing for the prior visit. And, or maybe they sit at home with a pneumonia that turns into sepsis and they come back in in septic shock when they could have followed up with a primary care doctor and received X, Y, and Z intervention. And so I think across the board, discharge teaching is something that is severely lacking in pretty much every place I've ever worked, mm. uh, there are some good, some bad, but as a whole, it could be a lot better. And some ways that we've tried to combat that and to implement different things is uh, we do a lot of discharge, post-discharge phone calls. And so uh, depending on the facility where I work, if I'm like two or three shifts in a row, maybe after the first day I come back in for my second shift, I'll pick maybe two or three patients that I saw the day before call them up and say, hey, how are you doing? Where are you at in your plan of care? Are you contacting your primary care doctor? Do you need a referral for a primary care doctor? You know, what's what can we help you with? And that has, I don't know how many visits that saved for me, but I feel like it saved a lot of return visits 
to the emergency department for doing something like that. But I think as a whole, discharge teaching could be a whole lot better mm. uh, in emergency nursing specifically. And I'm sure across the board, I feel like as inpatient nurses or inpatient discharge from like the floor, they probably get a little better discharge teaching than they would in the emergency department. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. For one, the emergency department is very fast paced. You, you may discharge somebody within five minutes and on the floor, you may discharge somebody, you know, in a couple hours. It, it, I think it's just, it's different. And I think that um, discharge teaching is a big area that emergency nursing could improve on. Well, I'm very glad that I pushed a little bit because what you just said is fascinating. I'll, and I'll just, I'll end that section, I guess, with um, a comment. So my last interview that I did, I don't know if you'd had a chance to listen to it, but it's with uh, Dr. Ann Sales, who... I did, yeah. Yeah, so Ann is a world-renowned implementation researcher and a nurse. And what's fascinating, one of the things she said is that, and I agree with her wholeheartedly, is that nursing is the system of healthcare in the U.S. at work. And nurses are the system in play. And so nursing research... And I wasn't trying to infuse this perspective because I wanted you to organically give me your answer. But it's interesting that your answer overlays with that concept because if discharge planning, discharge preparation, and the process of discharging patients in general were optimized, that's the system optimizing itself. And that really does have to fall to nurses and nurse researchers to kind of figure out how to optimize that as the system. So... I'll give you a chance to respond to that if you want, and then I'll I'll jump into the next question. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I I think that's super fascinating, and also something else to add. Uh, I think as since I've been in both roles as a bedside nurse and as a practicing nurse practitioner, largely the discharge fall the active process of discharging falls on the bedside nurse, and I I see some of my colleagues, whether physician, PA, NP go in and, and, you know, talking to a patient that has, maybe they have right lower quadrant pain, their labs are normal and their CT is negative for appendicitis. There's still, you know, labs and imaging miss things. There's still a chance you could have something going on in your abdomen. And so historically we have those patients follow up in 24 to 48 hours with a primary care doctor, or maybe even come back to the ER just for a repeat abdomen exam. So let me just put my hands on your abdomen and see if things are better. And I think that gets things like that get missed. So maybe a provider would go in and say, hey, your labs and imaging look normal. Everything's fine. The nurse is going to come let you go here shortly. And that just does a disservice. And I, I think that the discharge teaching should fall on the provider, honestly. I think the provider is the one who, whether, again, physician, NPPA, whoever, has evaluated and seen the patient, sit down, spend some time with the patient, and talk to them about their results, go over what they need to know. And I found that at the end of my conversations, it's good to ask the patient, you know, kind of summarize what we've talked about. Make sure, for me, make sure you can tell me why you came in, what we did for you, and what the next step is. Because a lot of the times when I'm finished with that, the patients say, oh, I don't know. You know, it's just like they didn't have a clue what I said. And so it's interesting to go back over it maybe a second time and and to talk to them so it can really solidify what the next step may be, whatever it is. So Great. So kind of backtracking to um, where you've been, where you're going, um, I would like, if you wouldn't mind, a 
as far as I know, you're in the process currently of changing careers, going from nurse practitioner to uh, a different nursing career. Could you talk a little bit about yeah. that? What was the impetus for that? What prompted that uh, yeah, desire that's, to change? Oh, that's a can of worms right there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I am going to be attending CRNA school. I want to okay. make switch to anesthesia. And honestly, this started back in nursing school. I, when I went to nursing school, I had in mind that I really wanted to go to anesthesia school. It was something that I wanted to do. And in the process of that, um, after I got out of school, I really wanted to work in the ER. And I did my rotations in the, my last, last semester nursing rotations in the ER and, and fell in love. And from the research that I did at the time, ER nurses don't go to anesthesia school. You know, ICU nurses go to anesthesia school. And I really didn't want to be in the ICU. I didn't really enjoy my ICU rotations. I I don't know. It, it wasn't like fast-paced enough for me, but the ER was. It just kind of satisfied that bug. And I knew that ER nurses really didn't go to anesthesia school. So I thought at the time, you know, I'm really enjoying kind of where the direction of nursing has taken me in the, in the route of ER. I want to pursue that for a little bit, maybe put anesthesia on the back burner and revisit this at a different time. And in the process of that, I shadowed some nurse practitioners who worked in the ER and really fell in love with that. And that was kind of, kind of the next best, not the next best thing, but the next best thing in my mind was put anesthesia on hold and pursue your career in emergency medicine and see where that takes you with the intent of maybe not giving up anesthesia forever, maybe consider it at some point. So that's kind of my direct, my life went in this other direction uh, of medicine, emergency medicine. And I really fell in love with it. However, I've always had this desire in the back of my head. Should I go back to anesthesia school? Should I go to medical school? Should I do, should I stay where I'm at? What should I do? And the more I thought about it, um, the more I thought that anesthesia would be something I would want to pursue. And I, I've shadowed some anesthesia providers and, and really fell in love with that, honestly. And kind of the tip of the iceberg for me was the conversations that I've had about NP education and oversaturation of nurse practitioners where I live. And that really kind of pulled the cherry from the tree for me, so to say. Um, I think this is obviously a whole other topic, but I think NP education is lacking. Uh, I'm a nurse practitioner. I feel like I can say that. Um, I feel like it's lacking in clinical aspects. I feel like it's lacking in the hard sciences. Uh, you know, to go to NP school, to go to nursing school, you don't need a whole lot of chemistry courses. You don't need biochemistry. You don't need organic chemistry one and two. And I, I think, I, I just think NP, NP education is lacking. And again, that's maybe top, a different topic for a different day. Um, also, the oversaturation of nurse practitioners really it started in in texas and uh huh. i posted some youtube videos on this about some of my reasons for pursuing a different career and the responses i got from that were fascinating um they were kind of polar opposite there was one there were there was a subset of people that would say oversaturation is not a thing it doesn't exist and maybe 90 percent more would say Yes, I 100% agree. Oversaturation is a thing. It is a thing here in Florida. It's a thing in Virginia. It's a thing in Illinois. Where, you know, whatever state. And I found that really fascinating. I didn't think about that. I thought it was maybe just something that I was dealing with in Texas. But uh, from my the comments that I've received on that video, it seems to be an ongoing theme across the United States. And that's really where 
I thought I need to make a decision about what I want to do. Uh, you know, I've had this passion for anesthesia for pursuing that. Maybe I should go in that direction and, and see where that takes me because I don't know where the NP profession will be in five or 10 years. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if I wanted a full-time job, would I be able to find one? Would I have to move across the country to find one? Would I take a pay cut to find one? And, and those are those are questions that I don't know kind of what the future looks like. Um, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics predicts that there's major openings for nurse practitioners, job growth, et cetera. I don't see where that's at right now. I know that's, that's a thing and that's the literature is there for that, but I, I just don't, I don't see that. And that is a little concerning for me. I've been practicing for six years. I mean, I have, I don't know, 30 or 40 more years of work left uh, if I'm lucky. And I don't know what my career looks like going forward. I know I want to do anesthesia. Do I want to give up being a nurse practitioner forever? Probably not. Uh, I really like the ER. Um, kind of in that same regard, I also don't see myself running around in the ER when I'm 50 years old, you know, seeing 20 or 30 patients in a day. I just, I don't, that's not something I want for myself. There are people out there who do that and love it. And that's great. We need plenty of ER providers available. But mm. for me personally, that's just not something I see myself doing. And I really think I want to, uh, I want to switch paths, maybe not for forever, but I want to switch paths and pursue anesthesia and kind of see where that takes me. And so I am at the beginning of that journey now. So um, maybe we could touch base in like five years and I can tell you. Yeah, yeah, I would love that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know what to think about it. It's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting to, um, it'll be interesting to see where, where the, you know, I think the saturation was present pre-COVID and mm. I think COVID has kind of confounded that. Uh, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see maybe in a year or two what, what happens. Yeah, I agree. So when you speak about the education, I know that the CRNA programs have a little bit of a different requirement to get in, um, and certainly that the programs themselves are are different enough in some of the requirements for the program itself. So I'm curious, talk a little bit about, like, you mentioned that the education is one of the reasons why. Uh, maybe... Another significant reason is potential oversaturation and job security and things like this. But was the education um, an important reason for your moving into CRNA? Uh, you're talking about NP education? Yeah, like was the educational rigor of the CRNA program a draw for you? Yeah, so the, the CRNA programs historically are all brick and mortar. And there's no online option. And... You, I can't speak to this several years ago, but I know within the past few years, there are some pretty hard science requirements, meaning you have to have, you know, several years of chemistry underneath your belt, maybe biochemistry, uh, physics, that sort of thing. And so that's a different than, than nurse practitioner education because you don't have to have that to go to nurse practitioner school. And so I think the education aspect of it really drew me in because I think, you know, as a nurse practitioner like I said, we're, I think we're lacking in the hard sciences. And I think that's something to be said whenever it comes to the physiology and the pathophysiology of disease. I've precepted students in the emergency department who are nurse practitioner students. And I've had a few who, 
we really can't talk about basic pathophysiology or basic physiology. And that I find that disheartening, honestly, that, you know, that we don't have, and, and I'm speaking for myself as well, that, you know, I'm a nurse practitioner, that, that we don't have a foundation in the sciences when we are practicing advanced practice nursing. And that's, that's a little disheartening. In contrast, uh, you know, with the CRNA program, uh, there are hard science requirements you have to have to get into there. Um, they're very rigorous, and it's uh, it's it's challenge it's it's more challenging to get into anesthesia school than it is nurse practitioner school. And I think that was one of the draws for me is that I think going back to my points about oversaturation, I think that the rigor of the program, the difficulty of obtaining admission, the brick and mortar aspect, I think that's going to control the non-oversaturation of CRNAs uh, as in contrast with nurse practitioners who can get a degree wherever you want. There's not usually some schools, there's not stringent admission requirements. Um, So I I think that's, I think that's interesting to compare and contrast the two. And I think the, uh, the, the lack of admission restriction, admission requirements, however you want to phrase it, has really played a role in the oversaturation, unfortunately. So I'm, I'm connecting some dots here. It's interesting because you've, you mentioned these things, the educational component and the job security pieces. Um, and I wasn't sure how they fit together, but actually that link that you just made makes that a lot more clear for me. Um, and you know, for the pre-nursing students that listen, I most of my listeners seem to be RNs and NPs, but um, a lot of my listeners are nursing professors, which is interesting. Um, that is interesting. <laughs> which actually I like a lot because I think that yeah. the, the conversations cross uh, across the table need to happen. But um, yeah. but there are a cadre of pre-nursing students who listen, and for those people, I think it's important to say there's a huge amount of variability in NP programs. And that you should do your due diligence when you look for programs, because there are some fabulous programs and some not-so-fabulous programs out there. What's interesting about what uh, you're saying, David, is that there's a lot less variability within CRNA programs. They're all particularly rigorous, and they're all, you know, you might have some NP programs where there's not that much in the way of admissions requirements that are particularly difficult barriers to get across, and then some which require a lot, with the CRNA program, there's a lot less variability. They're all good programs. Um, And that, I mean, the idea that it's harder to get in and that it's more difficult to complete means that less people will saturate the market, and therefore job security is better, stability is better, and everyone that, that does go out into that market is competent. Another thing I've noticed uh, is there aren't a whole lot of CRNAs who practice as nurse practitioners or vice versa. There's not a lot of NPs who practice as CRNAs. There hmm. are, interestingly enough, there are people out there that do that. Though. There are uh, there are people that have both realms of certification, I guess. Uh, when you say dual certification, you usually think of something nurse practitioner-wise, but they have both certifications, CRNA and NP. Hmm. And I think they're maybe smaller than larger, but there is a smaller subset of jobs that will allow you to practice in both areas and to utilize both certifications. So if you maybe work with a cardiothoracic group and you're doing cardiothoracic anesthesia and the next day you round on the cardiothoracic patients in the ICU. So there are areas in which you can utilize both certifications. And in that same regard, as I mentioned prior in this podcast, you know, the scope of practice issue is something that's big in emergency medicine. And it's something that 
I think for me at least, I somewhat shy away from because you really don't want to get in trouble with governing bodies. That's not like where you want to be in life. Right. And um, so as a CRNA, your, your scope of practice is very well defined. You do anesthesia across the lifespan and you only do anesthesia. And uh, one of the one of the faculty members that I interviewed with was uh, was a C, or is a CRNA and an NP, and so it was interesting to get his perspective on what the, kind of comparing and contrasting what the two schools look like. And so, uh, as a family nurse practitioner, I would take that it's one of my certifications. Your scope of practice is very broad and wide. Maybe it's only you know two or three inches deep. You barely scratch the surface of. of family medicine across the lifespan. However, in anesthesia, your scope of practice may only be like six inches wide, but it may be six miles deep. And so there's just a whole lot of stuff you have to know about anesthesia versus even an adult gero acute care nurse practitioner. Maybe there's, I listened to one of your prior episodes of podcasts. I don't know an answer to the question of what the bottom age limit is. I think that's, that's very gray. Yes. Um, 13 to 18 all the way to death you know that's still a very large scope of practice that you have uh, and you you know you barely scratch the surface depending on what area you're in um, whereas with anesthesia it is a very deep deep hole that you're going to dig yourself into uh, knowledge wise mm. so absolutely as i think about the conversation so far in terms of where we need more research emphasis we need some attention paid to the standardization of education and certification somehow. Agreed. And I don't know what the solution to that is, but I know it needs to happen. Agree. <laughs> and then, of course, that there's the pragmatic patient care health services research lens that we talked about with regard to discharge. There is some research that needs to be focused on how do we standardize NP education the way that anesthesia has done it? How did they do it? They're successful. CRNAs are well-respected even by physicians. Yeah, I find it interesting that in emergency medicine, I'm, I'm doing a lot of the same things that my colleagues are doing, mm. physician colleagues are doing. And I don't know, you know, NPs don't have the chemistry background, the biochemistry background that a physician would. Yeah. One of the questions I have at the end is, which I'm sure you probably saw already, which is like, how would you define nursing science, nursing research? And I don't want to color your answer, but one of the things that Dr. Sales mentioned on the last podcast is that she's not convinced there is a nursing science. And I'm actually pretty sure that I agree, although I'm still really teasing that apart. But one of the things that I think is that there's also not a medical science. There's science, which is yeah. biology, chemistry, physics, etc. And then it's applied to generate, you know, to engineer a better human outcome from some disease state or some condition. And so it's more akin to engineering than science. And I think that nursing should be similar. And my question is, in what ways would it be different from medicine? And at the nursing level, I think it, it there are interesting differences. At the nurse practitioner level, how different it should be is really, that's a murky territory for me. And I think to the point that you seem to be making, we really need to be focused more on that. So did we miss anything that you can think of that, that covers your experiences in terms of working across the country, across state lines? Um, anything that you would like to say on those points before I close out? I don't think so. I, I think overall the traveling thing has been such an eye-opening, like life-changing experience for me. I really, when I first started traveling, I thought, you know, I'll give it 
you know, a month and just see what happens. And after, after I did it, I really fell in love and it's been something that I've been very passionate about and something that uh, the experiences that I've had, you know, they'll always hold a special place in my heart uh, just because it's been, it's been really cool getting to not only practice medicine in different areas of the world, uh, but to meet and interact and to develop relationships with people in those places as well. And I think that's been something that I've found the most rewarding is developing relationships with people in different areas of the United States, different areas of the world, and um, getting to foster those relationships every time I come back. And I think that's that's probably been the best part, honestly. That's awesome. So before we go, I always ask interviewees this question, uh, some derivative of this question. I'm curious how would you define what is nursing? What does it mean to be practicing nursing? And then what, how do you define nursing research similarly? Ah, those are challenging questions. <laughs> um, how would I define nursing or nursing practice? Um, I think for me, uh, it, it tends to take on more of a like personal role or like a personal definition and the fact that I really try to treat my patients the way that I would treat my mom or my dad and to try to provide the best care for them and to do the right thing. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing. You know, maybe it it requires you to put in extra work to get the patient to X, Y, and Z specialist. Uh, Maybe uh, as a nurse practitioner, it, it requires you to spend 30 extra minutes after your shift calling around to get the patient in the next day to see whatever specialist you're trying to get them to see. And so I really, for me personally, it, it means trying to provide the care that I would provide to a family member. I really appreciate that. Um, and then as far as your last question, all right, that's, I'm trying to think about that. That's challenging. How would I define nursing research? Um, and in fairness, I understand you're not a researcher, so like I kind of, but that's actually a a better reason for me to ask it. I think. Yeah, sure, that makes sense. I think I would define nursing research by taking what we experience at the human level and implementing it in the field of either nursing or advanced practice nursing. For me, that would look like taking. It sounds very cliche, but taking the whole person into account. And I think in the emergency department, that's something that does not get done. I don't think we consider, uh, I don't think we consider the emotional aspect of people in the emergency department. I think we see another body and we just like let them go. Um, but for me, I think the research aspect really brings in, especially for nursing, really brings in the human aspect of it. You know, it's not just a molecule or a reaction taking place in a test tube, you know, it's a life that you are, it's a life that you're dealing with. And as nurses, we interact with humans, with people on a daily basis, and we affect their lives greatly on a daily basis. And I think the research aspect of nursing differs quite a bit from a hard science and the fact that you are considering a human. And, uh, you know, I think in medical research, we do a good job at considering human in their interaction, but I think it's, it's definitely more intervention focused, medicine focused, diagnostic testing focused, whereas nursing research tends to be more human focused, relational focused, taking the person, their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions into account. 
So that is a very all over the board definition, but that's, um, that's what I would say. I don't see it as all over the board. I'm going to do an entire episode on this question of like where the differences are between medical science and nursing science. And one of the things you said really resonates with me, which is the humanity that's involved in nursing science as compared Mm -hmm. to medical science, because medical science is very heavily focused on the disease state and nursing science in some ways is much more focused on the human state. And so some of the inputs to the system to generate some other output is different um, just by virtue of the philosophical differences. But, uh, but no, I think your answer was great. I really appreciate it. So how can people, now that we're kind of coming to the end here, how can people follow your journey and keep up with what you're doing? And, you know, we know you have a a YouTube channel. Where is that? And where else can people find you? Yeah. So my YouTube channel is David Warren NP. David Warren NP, very easy to find. Is it going to be uh, David find... Warren CRNA, like a second channel soon? Or? <laughs> to be disclosed. We'll <laughs> okay. Um, that'll be interesting. To, obviously, different different conversation. It'll be interesting to see how the YouTube journey morphs uh, over the coming years. So oh. stay tuned for that. Um, as far as other ways to get in touch with me, you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, my ha- my hashtag, my handle, DSW4012. D is in David, DSW4012. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of your podcast, your episode so far. So I look forward to listening to the, to the other folks that you have on your show. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. There are millions of nurses out there who might benefit from hearing this material, but in order for these podcast algorithms to even pick up the signal of people's interest in this show, there really have to be a minimum number of ratings or reviews on a show, so it really does help in the budding years of a podcast like this one. I'd be very grateful if you could give it a quick rating. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com or visit my website at about.me forward slash ianlane. If I ever review a paper you are an author on, or you would like to join me to discuss some relevant project you are doing, please send a note to that same email address. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.